Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. What I want to talk to you today about numerous things, but I want to just start by declaring a word over the place that this this body, or, or I'll just say it like this, this band that you're carrying around all over the all over the different atmospheres and portals that are in this city. This is, and I'm not talking about just the players. I'm talking about there's a band or a company of prophetic people that are moving from an, uh, from culture to culture or, or, or environment to environment, atmosphere to atmosphere in this culture. And I'm just going to say this. Revelation of the tabernacle of David that you're walking in is actually uh, about to accelerate into a place where you're moving from singing songs, which you do so well, and uh, 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 moving from singing songs uh, to the fulfillment of what's really in your heart, which is to release a corporate sound over the city. And that's moving from, because there's a lot of churches in this city today that are singing songs, but you guys don't do that. What you do is you're releasing a corporate sound that is awakening old promises of God. And the, this, the establishing of an atmosphere of the tabernacle of David is not something, something that's coming to London. It's something that's here and it's already being released because you're carrying an alignment of heaven in worship. And that's one of the reasons that the Lord has you going from position to position to position to position right now. You're moving. See, like in the days of Samuel, Samuel had a place called Naot Ramah where he was training the musicians and the, and the prophetic voices for that generation, but they didn't have an established place. They were continually on a circuit, continually moving from place to place and spot to spot. Now, allow yourself to be bold in your worship because we, we cannot be those that are worshiping the way we want to. We are, we are never given permission to worship however you want to. There's a, there's a biblical uh, uh, reality that you guys are carrying that is not about you and it's not about me. It's not about humanity so much. It, it's, what you're dealing with here is you're, you're called to move in the spirit realm, move old church structures out of the way, and you're replacing them by heaven structures. And the most vibrant churches in a city will lose its vibrancy when it grows to the point deemed worthy to sustain and manage. And then it disappears from the battlefield and no longer contends for the corporate sound of heaven over a city. And that's, this is one of the reasons that God has disallowed you to this point to have a structure set in place in such a way that you could disappear from the battlefield that need, the battlefields that need to be fought in the spirit realm all over this region. Now, there's words and notes and tones that are spoken and sung uh, out of the out of what you're carrying that is dealing with defiled land. And when you step onto these places that are, you, you sometimes you don't ever know how the, how defiled that land is. And you'll step into those places and release a song and a welcome of the Lord. You started off this morning with, we welcome you with praise. 
Or that's one of the first things I heard. We welcome you with praise. We welcome you with praise. And uh, which is a wonderful song. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody did. But what you were really saying there is what I heard was, is we are filling this air with expressed confidence in your ability to do more than we can ask or think or even imagine in this place. And so, Lord, we're welcoming you into this place. We're filling the air with our expressed confidence in your ability to do more than we could ask, think, or imagine. So let's stretch our hearts today and let's stretch our minds today and, and, and try to reach out into a place, into, the, into that place of confidence where we know that God can do more than we can ask or we can think or we can imagine. And we know that he can do that by using the simple simple song of our heart to release the profound purposes that he has for a city. You're filling an air, you're filling an atmosphere with that kind of a knowing. It's time, it's, and it's not time to go, down, go around pulling down strongholds. It's time to go around pulling down heaven. And what you're doing is you're engaging heaven and you're aligning heaven with the, with the purposes of God and the earth and you're welcoming him to do what he desires to do here. That's an awesome thing to have that kind of a privilege, you know. And uh, now some, you, some uh, make waves, some ride the waves, and some are the wave. And since you are a wave, that's why you're constantly in a state of movement. But so, so, so are those that carry songs. There's always something moving in the heavens around those that are carrying in alignment with heaven. So what I, what I want to say to you today is uh, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a of the get out the picture book here with you a little bit if you don't mind. And rather than doing rather than teaching, I'm going I'm just going to tell some stories and I want, and I'm just going to leave it in a way in such a way that he who has ear to hear you're going to hear what the Lord is saying to your life because through through the through the means of storytelling, uh, I've I've seen God do some amazing, incredible things. But the the, the story that I'm going to tell you is a, is a strategic story, and it has to do with uh, with uh, songs being released o- over regions and over cities. Uh, now, somebody, as I said, somebody wrote that song that we sung earlier. And I want you to notice that songwriters who have have a voice to their culture, and, and there's many of those that have come out of this culture, of course, but songwriters tend to live their lives in a swarm of language, lyrics, and legends. And they live with a general sense of loneliness because they're not always connected and engaged people-wise. You know, poets and dreamers and thinkers and creatives are not always real engaged. Sometimes it's sort of like they're, they're looking out the back of your head when you're trying to have a conversation with them. And these are some, sometimes they are brilliant minds and incredible thought processes are going on and all kinds of sparks are going off. And some of them are incredibly bright, intelligent people. You, you can always tell, like, like a scientist, for example. Uh, but their, but their, their science is not born around chemicals and matter. It's born around images and sometimes around beauty and such. But uh, also, you, know, you can always know a science because they can tell you how the world works, but they can never find the keys to their hotel room. Or they can, they can never find the keys to their car, but they can tell you how the, all the planets align. 
But songwriters tend to live in a bit of a, on a bit of a different plane. But too often they, they celebrate their own fierce independence as, as a poetic virtue. And I wonder sometimes if they could find a healthy understanding of interdependence, what would happen? Maybe loneliness and pain would not be such an art form then. Because songs of loneliness and pain are usually written during seasons of not knowing who you can trust. So what happens is they default to their fierce independence because they have found that they can always trust loneliness to produce lyrics and language that legends are made of. And somehow that makes their loneliness worth it. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about David. I'm talking about King David. What we have in the Word of God, what we have, even though David didn't write all of them, is we have 150 possibilities of understanding how David worked through his emotional issues and engaged God and released a sound in the earth that became a lyric that carried promise rather than the pain. Now, what... Songwriters have learned how to do in this in our culture. So they've learned how to monetize their misery and monetize their pain. And then when we hear the song of their pain, we say, well, I should have written that song because I've gone through that same thing. And, but in, in biblical days, in the days of the tabernacle of David, it was not about their pain. It, it would become about his presence every time. Though my enemies slay me, though the pain of this world come, though da 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 da, da though yeah, the world is in a mess. But right in the middle of that mess, their mission would shift and change. And though my enemies slay me, yet I will praise the Lord my God, who is worthy to be praised. Though the enemy do, do so and so, yet my God will da 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 da. da. Though the atmosphere of this city is in, in, has, in those days, they would say, though we're being invaded by the Amalekites, though we're being invaded by the, whoever they were, they would turn their eyes to, to the conditions that the enemy was creating for their life to be lived in bondage and slavery and, and pain and loss and all that. Though, and see, there's no shortage of pain in London, England. There's no shortage of pain. There's no shortage of, of hurting people. There's no shortage of broken people. There's no shortage of people that just don't, don't even understand the world they live in anymore. Look at the things that are going on in this world, but just don't look at them long. God has got something better than what's going on in people's lives in this place. And in, day, and in days past, in some of London's darkest times, God would raise up some insignificant, somebody would rise up out of their insignificance and stand up with a song that would define the purposes of God and fill the air with an express confidence in his ability to do something about it, and he did. Now that's how, that's because he's faithful. That's because he's wonderful. That's because he's amazing. And now you've run down that line of all of the beautiful images that, that he that he reveals of himself to us. What if that became our language as songwriters? And I want to take, I want to shift something around here. I want to shift our understanding of what a songwriter is. A songwriter is every one of us. 
Lord, you are the strength of my life. You are my song, and what you bring to my life as a lyric will be lived because of your faithfulness. That is a biblical principle and a spiritual reality if we will begin to carry the song and be the song that we were created to be. Now, how do those songs uh, uh, come to us sometimes? Let, let me finish this right here. There are, there are songwriters that are actually have given themselves to the crafting songs and writing songs that give us a united language and lyric to align our hope to when we come into a place like this and sing. And what we're doing is we're create, songwriters create unifying factors that enable us to honor God with the same melody, the same tempo, the same images, the same rhythm, at the same sound, at the same time, unto the same God, and create a corporate atmosphere of aligning heaven and earth. Now, that, now that's a beautiful thing. Then the other side of that is, is every one of us are a song. And when we, when we get our lyric and bring it to the atmosphere, our life aligns and we become an expression of that heavenly expression where we go. And he surrounds us with songs of deliverance. We are, we are surrounded, according to Psalm 32, we're going to look at it in a minute, but we are surrounded with songs of deliverance. Now, there are writers in this room that are not alive to or moved by the songs and the sounds that define our present understanding of worship. So the, there's, there's worship songs and that are being put out there becoming, becoming the language of the nations today. And there's a lot of folks that are saying, I just don't get it. I, you know, that, does, that doesn't necessarily appeal to me as a writer. You know why? Because you're seeing and you're hearing things that are for the next wave that God wants to bring. And you're not, and see, there is a wave in the worship realm right now that's already crested. And a lot of people feel left out because look at this wave that's happening and I just don't relate to or feel that kind of sound or song. I mean, I can appreciate the musicality there, but that's not the expression. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, that's, that's just not, that's not who I am as a songwriter. So evidently I'm missing God. No, the Lord reveals wave after wave after wave. And that wave, what happens is when a wave comes, then a lot of times man starts trying to sustain the wave that they've built. And now pretty soon they're trying to manage and, and monopolize what has happened to sustain it as long as it can be sustained. But I want to tell you right now they're standing the next wave is rising up right now. And, though, and those in that wave that, that is now, those that are humble enough to realize that they're part of the song of the sea rather than the independent thing, we're going, we're going to find out that, that there's a wave already put in motion and here comes another one. And it's going, it's going, we're all going to be immersed in a new sound and a new song and a new language that God's bringing right now. So artists and songwriters sing their doubt many times as a language of faith. What? David did. He went ahead and sung his doubt because he knew there was something more coming. Oh, my enemies are such and such. But it became the language of their faith because songs born, born out of tension and release, tension and release. 
I don't want to get too deep into this. I know it's a Sunday morning kind of thing, but let's, and I don't want to get too deep into it and, and kind of isolate people that are not musical from what I'm saying today. But I also, I just wanted to get said, there's a new language coming and there's a new sound coming. There's a new song coming. And you may be one of those that, that, that will just step right up with your song and your sound. And it carries something in the spirit realm that you never dreamed would ever happen in your life. Don't miss that because we uh, wave after wave after wave after wave is coming. Now, the, uh, the, let's see. If we have a mission without a message, we'll always default to entertainment. But if you, if you can't entertain, then what happens is you default to criticism. And when we become critical about the last wave, sometimes that disqualifies us for rising up in such a season as now and capturing the lyric of heaven and bringing it forward. So I want to, I want to get a, a little a, a little bit away from foundationally. I want that to be what's spoken today, but I want to get a little bit of away from a teaching thing right now. And, and I just want to I want to show you a picture because this picture is far better than anything that I could uh, just bring in as far as uh, uh, scriptural revelation right now. The uh, the uh, um, you know I, it, it's no secret uh, I come from. I come from hillbilly stock in in, in Kentucky, and um, I know some of you may think this. Some of you hear this as an accent, and some of you see, hear it as an affliction. But <laughs> but the fact is, our our lyrics and and our our lyrics and our songs were born out of the culture and out of the accents and out of the out of the out of the hiddenness and the isolation. When you go into the mountains of Kentucky, eastern Kentucky actually is the purest preservation of the Elizabethan English that exists anywhere in the earth today because we never progressed like London did. We never progressed like some of the other places in the world did. And when, when the Scots and the Irish, the Welsh and the, and the English came into those mountains and established themselves, one of the reasons we're called hillbillies is because we, we were called, uh, named after uh, William Augustus. Uh, uh, the, we became the hillbillies the, uh, of, of, of William. And, uh, and, and we still say things like ye and yin and how are yins and, and ye and all that kind of stuff. It's still a part of our language there. A lot of folks don't, don't realize that that actually comes from over here. And, uh, but, in, but also, in the hiddenness of that was a lot of old knowings, if you will, and old superstitions and old, old ways of life that get isolated and, and don't progress and go forward. And, and, and we still, uh, you know, like we, we still have set teeth uh, in some of those hidden pockets. My granny would say, get in there, and get in there on the set tee, youngins, and don't you get up there another time. And uh, now when, when she would scold you, she would say things like, now, youngin, you get right there in that cheering light. Don't you get up there another time. I'll swarp you across the face and eyes, and you'll go to the house of looking back over your shoulder or gaping in the swaller. And believe it or not, and believe it or not, that's English. <clears throat> now we live in a day where we're, all our accents 
are basically being dissolved into, we are all learning our languages and our accents from TV now. So we're, we're multicultural in our accents. You know, sometimes it's a bit tricky to know where people are from because they're, they're, the kids are television trained, right? And we get our accents from movies and we get our, we get our cultural nuances and knowings of who we are from things where everybody has access to. We're, we're a computer-driven culture, but it hadn't always been that way. Even as, even as young as my generation, we, didn't, we had one light bulb in the house. Uh, we didn't have running water in the house. We, we had an outhouse, and we would go to the spring. And I remember on days like when it would become wash day, you know, well, me and my brother, would have, we'd carry 27 buckets of water every time it was wash day. And we had an old, I don't know if you all have them over here, but old ringer washers where you would run the, run the clothes through a ringer washer, you know, and that old thing would sit on the porch and, oh, 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 because it was, it was electric. I mean, so we were sort of uppity. Uh, and uh, now, is uppity a word y'all understand? All right. Uh, uppity, you know, uppity is a tricky word. Uppity is sort of like the word hissy. Uh, in our part of the country, uh, that, uh, mama would say something like, Boy, when your daddy gets home, he's going to throw a hissy. You know, that's her way of scolding us, threatening us with daddies of coming home. And because when we'd act up, he'd say, now when, that, when your daddy gets home, he's going to throw a hissy. Now, when my little child like mine, I don't know what a hissy is, but I know when daddy gets home, he's going to throw one. Right? And I know that I've done something to incite the, uh, this whole, and he, I'm, he's going to throw a hissy. And here's the problem. And then she'd say, boy, are you going to catch it? Which means now daddy's going to throw something called a hissy and I'm supposed to catch it and don't know what it looks like. And now, now, my, my, now mothers didn't throw hissies, they threw tizzies. Right? Now, and, a, and a hissy and a tizzy is sort of like, like a, a conniption. See, none of these are in the, none of them are in a dictionary. But they don't have to be in a dictionary. If you ever see somebody throw a hissy, you know what a hissy is for the rest of your life. Or a tizzy. When mama would throw a tizzy, we understood tizzy for the rest of our life, though we couldn't find it in a dictionary. And they're both actually cousins to conniptions, which is also not in there. But you get a hissy, a tizzy, and a conniption going on in one house, I'll just tell you this. There's hell to pay if you get that going on in one house. Yep. And I, and I remember that, that, that uh, now, and when my daddy threw a hissy, you, what that was, was basically you're going to get a whooping. I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if they have whoopings over here, if they ever did, but in our house, when you got a whooping, you knew you, you my daddy was a whooper. Uh, now, does a whooping mean anything to y'all? Okay, see, see, nowadays, I reckon they have time out. You know, you know, but back then you got a whooping. Okay. Completely different deal. Let me tell you this. Yeah, I remember when now, and, and when my daddy was going to correct us, when we were going to get a whooping, you knew it was a big deal because my daddy would set you down. It was a 30 minute routine. You're right. And he'd set you down and he'd, he'd begin this big, long speech. And in that 30-minute speech, he would teach you all the principles that you and the concepts that you had defaulted on, you know. And it would be like, okay. And then he would come to that time in the speech. He says, now, son, this 
is going to hurt me more than it. How many of you ever heard that lie, right? Now this is going to hurt me more than it. And I'd always say, well, now don't hurt yourself now, daddy. I don't, I don't want you to hurt yourself. Because anytime he would start hurting himself, I was always in the way for some reason. And then he, and then he would put a whooping on you and you fully understand why you had received it. it. The whole thing was very clear. You learned from that experience, right? And, but my mothers and Southern mothers don't whoop like that. They're, they, you don't even know it's coming till you've got it. You know what I'm saying? So whatever you're doing at the time or whatever she's doing at the time, when you take mama off, when, Whatever she's doing at the time is what you get, right? Because they're completely emotional beings. So when you make mama mad, if she's brushing her hair, you you get a you you get a hairbrush right across your forehead, just like that. You don't even know it's coming until you. And that's what I call time out, you know, because you get it right. And I remember we were always the, the nicest kids when mama was ironing, you know, if she had, if she was ironing, we were, we were the best kids in the world. Or, or if she were hoeing in the garden, if she was out there hoeing or, or sweeping, if she had a broom, man, we were just, cause we knew if we ticked her off, we would get whatever, we, we would get whatever it is. And uh, I remember one time that my brother junior made a horrible mistake. Um, he took mom off. She flew mad and he ran from her. That's not good. That's just not good right there. Because all of a sudden she flew mad and he took off out the front door. And we lived in an old house that was on the side of a hill. Matter of fact, you could, you could, uh, you could just run under the porch trying to get in the house if not careful. But he went out the front door and down off the end of the porch and around the house and shot up under this little crawl thing on, back there by the kitchen, under the kitchen. He shot up under the house like a lizard, just like a bullet up under there. He went. And what shocked me the most is she didn't even chase him. She didn't take off after him or anything. She just stayed in the house. Didn't even, and I was thinking she's going to take off after him. And he laid up under the porch all day. There he was, two, three, but about every hour or so, she'd walk through the kitchen and go, come on out and get your whooping. About the time he would forget, you know, he just kind of, who knows what he was doing under there. But he was suddenly reminded that she's not forgetting. All day long, he laid up under the, up under the porch. And then that, that afternoon, daddy got home from work, got out of the car. She met him, met my dad at the screen door. I said, look, and she was standing there looking through the screen. He's, and he walked up and she said, Junior has run from a whooping. He's under the house. And daddy said, oh no. And he turned around and walked all the way around back, but, oh, back there where the hole was under the house. He got down on his elbows and he crawled up under the house on his elbows. And, and he said, we heard him. He said, Junior. And Junior said, Daddy, is that you? He said, yep. He said, is she after you too? <laughs> can't, you, you, you can't run from a whooping. 
Yeah, I, I remember, now, you know what, when it, when it came meal time at our house, now living, living in the mountains, living, you know, and we were poor, no doubt about it. We didn't know it, but we were. You know, when I, when I say we had one old, one old light bulb hanging in the, hanging in the front room, well, there was a screw in that socket where you could unscrew the light bulb and put a plug in there and we could plug up a fan in there on a hot summer day. And would have, you know, and then you'd sit in there and listen to that old washing machine on the porch. That rhythm on a hot day and you're just lulling off. And I, and Granny would say, get on the set tee there, youngin, and take you a nap after carrying all them buckets of water. And she'd hook up the fan. And it was one of those old kind of, one of those old ovulating fans, you know, that go back and forth like that. And, uh, oh, oh, I, no, oscillating, o- oscillating fan. Yeah, it was a, it, yeah, uh, Holy Spirit, come back. We, we, we need you. Yeah, it was an oscillating fan, just moving back and Back and forth like this, <clears throat> and uh, and you know I, I remember that it, that it would always it would keep it, it, whoa boy it, it would it would keep the house you just keep the air, hot air moving through the house that's basically all it meant to and then it would come meal time we always ate the same thing we always had well we we would have fried uh, pinto beans fried potatoes and cornbread. And the next night, we would have cornbread, fried potatoes, and pinto beans. And the next night, we would have fried potatoes, cornbread, and pinto beans. And pin, you know, no, would you just rotate the three throughout? But that's all we ever had. But I don't know how many of you have ever had cornbread. If you've ever had cornbread, you don't need anything else. Oh. Cornbread is a wonderful thing. Oh, you can put anything on cornbread. You can't hurt cornbread. It's any way you eat it. It's just it's it's wonderful. I, I remember when Denise and I got married 40, 40 years ago. When we first got married, uh, you know, I married her by faith. I had no idea if she could make cornbread or not. Yeah, but I, I remember. As a child now, cornbread was such a big deal. I remember one time we had company come into our house. And my mother, she, you know, she used to always make sure things were in line. She, she'd do things like she'd line us up. If we were going into a store or something or going to visit somebody, she'd get us out of the car and line us up beside the old car. And she'd say, now, youngins, we're going in here. And I expect you to act like you've got some sense. I expect you to act like you've got a brain. So then we would go in there and we would act like we had a brain. Because if we didn't act like we had a brain, we'd get that uh, reminder. But anytime we had company coming over, she'd do the same thing. She'd say, no, we got company coming tonight. And kids, I expect you to act like you've got some sense. Act like you've got a brain. And sure enough, the company shows up and there we're all sitting around the table acting like we had a brain. As if we know you don't, but you're going to act like you have a brain. So we're sitting around the table there, and Mama put out the cornbread on the middle of the table. And sure enough, so I started passing that plate of cornbread all the way around, and everybody got a piece of cornbread. And when everybody had a piece of cornbread, I noticed that the plate came back to the middle of the table. And there on that plate was one piece of cornbread. 
And I was a little guy. And right there in that moment, as soon as I looked out there, a faith vision arose up in my heart. And I realized if I got my cornbread down first, that one belonged to me, right? That is my piece of cornbread. I just know it in my heart. So I'm, I'm in, so sure enough, man, I start eating mine as quick as I can. Crumbs are flying. And, and, and I won. Hey, what can I say? I'm, I'm good when it comes to cornbread. I won. I looked out there and, and I, I didn't move. I didn't reach for it. I didn't say anything. I, didn't, I just looked at that piece of cornbread. And when I did, I caught my mother's eye across the table. My mother didn't say a word. She didn't raise her hand. She didn't raise an eyebrow, an eyelash, nothing on my mother moved, no expression whatsoever. But immediately when I looked at my mother's face, I knew that that was not my piece of cornbread. <laughs> and the reason I knew that that was not my piece of cornbread is because I knew my mother. And, uh, and Psalm 32, 8 came into being right there. I will instruct you in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide you with my eye. Now, the reason I knew, see what, in that moment, I knew my mother's will in this matter. I knew if I reached for the cornbread, I'd draw back a nub. I knew if I reached for the cornbread, I'd get something across the fort. I knew, I knew that there Things could happen because, because I knew my mother. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to propose for one minute that God is trying to keep you away with, with, a, with some sort of judgment, promise of judgment coming down. But God does want a people that are relationally connected to him in such a way that we know his will. And we know his desires because we have face-to-face -face relationship with the Father in such a way that we don't have to go to the judgment end of this thing. We can simply know the will of the Father because we are accustomed to seeing the beauty of his face and the desire that he has for our life. I don't, I don't believe, you know, I don't believe we're, we're um, I don't believe we're necessarily, I don't think we're supposed to seek God's will. I don't think we're supposed to seek a ministry. I don't, I, I don't, if you, I think we're supposed to seek his face and we're walking his will. I think, I think, and what, to build a ministry, what in the world is that about? When we're trying, if we will think differently if we're trying to build a ministry to please God or give our self-identity and self-worth born out of building a ministry and striving to make something happen. It's not about building a ministry. It's about finding a way to give our life away. And when we find the way to give our life away, God will put his grace upon it to see to it that his life is what pours through us. And the only way to, to move in ministry and be effective is it being the overflow of your worship. And the overflow of your worship then empowers you to do the ministry and the call that you're created for. Whatever that call is in ministry is will just be the overflow of the reality of your relationship with him. And so you, if you build a ministry out of the energy of the flesh, you get to maintain it by the energy of the flesh. And pretty soon the striving brings burnout and then we have to walk out 
what we've created is our seasons of burnout. When in fact, if it's the overflow of worship, an eye-to-eye, face-to-face relationship with the real, with the Father heart of God, everything that we do will be born out of that. Now, the, and there's where our songs need to come from. There's where, that's where our song does come from. I believe that that's one of the reasons that David, David would write such a thing as this. He says, I will instruct, this is a song, remember. And in that song, I, he, he hears the heart of the Father saying, you know what? I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you'll go. I'm going to guide you with my eye, not a stick. I'm going to guide you with, with my countenance. We're going to know the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of the Lord will become uh, the means by which we gauge everything that flows out of our life. Now, uh, one of the way, now if you, if you were to back up just a verse or two, it's, it speaks, here's David singing one of those songs again, for this cause everyone of godly shall pray in a time that you may be found, surely even in the great flooded waters that they shall not come near him. Our enemies are not going to get us, guys. You are my hiding place, O God. You will preserve me, O Lord, from my trouble because you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, here's the way corporately a song of deliverance works. Every place that you can look back in your life and you see that God's hand sustained you and kept you, and brought you through the storms and the floods and the, and the waters. Every one of them can become remembrances in your own life and a song in your own heart that you can access. And because every one of those seasons were God's way of, of setting promises in motion. Everything that God has ever performed in the past becomes a promise to your future. And what songs of deliverance literally were... When, when David would say, Let's, he surrounds us with songs of deliverance, he has created an atmosphere that Deborah sung in. That's what he was saying. He has created an atmosphere of our lives covenantially that we hear the sounds, of, the sounds that Joshua released as the song of our deliverance when we remember the mighty acts of God, tell of his wondrous works, and that becomes our song. So where I'm going with this is, is what if there is a corporateness to every one of our single experiences unleashing our song of thankfulness and deliverance, and then we begin to surround atmospheres with thankfulness and the goodness of God. How do we know that we're dreaming the dreams of God for our life? The only way we know that, one, one way, not the only way, but one of the ways that we know we're dreaming the dreams of God for our careers and for our lives and for our children and so on, the way we know that we're dreaming the dreams of God is because they will always have a multi-generational impact and we're bringing forward promises for a future generation. That's the way the dream that is in your life is not necessarily about you fulfilling dreams. Uh, I, sh- I shared this little thing right here uh, with you last time I was here, but I, I just want to remind you. Blessed are the dreamers who dream the dreams of God. Dreams don't even have to come true to be valuable. Sometimes those dreams just sustain us and give us the courage to endure the dark seasons while a more focused purpose comes into view. 
And the best way to view that more focused purpose is with a song that continually reminds us of the faithfulness of God. So we sing, so even though we don't feel the wind of them yet, we sing into our future storms. We're continually, we're continually, uh, well, let, well, let me say it like this. Uh, well, uh, well we're, we're continually creating that atmosphere where we're, we're filling the future air with express confidence in your ability to do more than we can ask or think in our future. And this is not mind over matter. This is word of God, word of truth becoming the song of our lives. Now we're surrounding, being surrounded with songs of deliverance. I'll show you how it works. There was a, there was a <clears throat> young man who lived up in, in New England, uh, in, in uh, uh, Massachusetts, and one day he came to his mother and he said, uh, hey, uh, I'm ready to go out on my own. I'm, gonna, I'm moving away. I'm moving away from the farm and I'm going to Boston. And uh, so his mother came to him and said, well, okay, I knew the time was coming sooner or later and you go ahead and you move to Boston. And, and you know, be a man and find your way. And this was in the 1800s and, and then it was a tricky time to go out on your own, but it had to happen sooner or later. So she's sending him off. And she said, I bless you going to Boston, but you better not better never hear of you hanging around a Protestant. And so she put the she put the boundaries out there for her. You're 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 a Unitarian, you were born a Unitarian, you'll die a Unitarian, and you better not da 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 da. So she gave him the speech and the blessing and sent him off. And so he goes off and he goes to work for his uncle in, in Boston. He goes to work there in a, in, a, in a shoe store. And one day and knowing that he couldn't go to church or anything because everybody around him were Protestants, he just sort of isolated himself a bit. But there was a real nice guy named Mr. Kimball kept coming by the shoe store. Mr. Kimball would say, say, well, why don't, why don't you, you know, come to our Bible study? It's not really a church thing, but you might meet some friends and you might meet, might even meet a girl. And uh, sure enough, he started going to these time or two, but he did, certainly keeping it a secret from his mother back on the farm. And uh, but after about six months, this this uh, teacher, this Sunday school teacher, came by one day, walked in the room, walked in the store, and he said, "Hey, listen, guess what?" He said, "What?" He said, "Today, today is the day you get saved." And he looked at him. And he said, "What?" He said, oh yeah, today is the day you get saved. Today is the day that you give your heart to Jesus. He said, what are you talking about? He said, no, look here, really, it's true. He opened up the Bible and he said, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. This is your day. And so he said, well, well okay. And so he led him back to the back of kind of the storage room there in front of the door. He put his hand on this young man's shoulder and prayed the prayer of salvation with him. And he gave his heart to Jesus. He didn't feel any lightning strikes or anything. He just, wow. And not long after that, mama shows up in town. Mama came to town and to visit, and, and, but it wasn't about religion or anything. It was about something far more serious. She came and said, listen, your cousin, we don't know if he's alive or dead, but we know he's fighting in the Stones River Battlefield, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And we just need you to go from Boston down there to check and just to see if he's alive because his mother is a wreck. Don't know, not knowing if she's lost her son. And so 
This young man, being the man that he is, he takes off on the train, gets all the way to the Stones River battlefield, and they said when he, he came into the proximity of the battlefield, which was covered in miles, and he could smell the gunpowder in the air, and he could hear the, hear the sound of cannon fire and shot and shell raining hell and death down on the soldiers in the field. And when he looked out and he saw what was going on, he fell down on his stomach and began to crawl on his elbows from dying soldier to dying soldier, leading them to Jesus right before they would die. He was not trained, taught, any of that. But when he saw this, the environment, the atmosphere that he had walked into awakened in him a compassion. And out of that sense of compassion for dying humanity, he moved on it. And, and, you know, and I can just hear the innocence in probably what he was praying. It was probably sounded something like he heard in a shoe store back in Boston. And they say from that moment forward, this young D.L. Moody was never again the same. And because compassion found a place in his heart that caused the value of who he was changed. And what he valued in life immediately changed because this is a real world. This is a real hurt in humanity. This is real dying souls. This is real. It's not some, some sermonette for the Christianette and it's not some religious television programming. It's real people in real hurting situation. Well, from there he wound up, um, he went back to Boston. Not long after that you find him Seeing the need of the of the broken old guys in the streets, like the little street kids, and you know what he would do? He got him a pony. Did I ever tell you this story? He'd lead a pony and go all all through the alleys, and all these and he'd get some old kid and set the kid up on the pony and say, "Come on, we're going for a pony ride." And he'd lead this pony, and pretty soon there's 30 kids following him, just waiting to be the next one to get their turn. And about every 10 minutes, he'd take one kid off, put the other kid on, and here we go. And now he had 30 or 40 of them following him with this pony. And he'd walk right up to the church door, tie the pony, and say, Now come on, and when uh, we're going to hear the word of God, and when the sermon is over, everybody will get their turn. And so, now, now look at the creativity in that. Yeah. And uh, you talk about creative evangelism. And that day, well, look, look how wonderful that was. And then, but the church people, they didn't like this. And this, and this, they didn't like it at all. Because they're bringing those, those dirty-faced little, you know, street urchins into the house of God. And what, they, what he was doing is he was filling the pews with these little dirty-faced kids. And the, and the church people didn't like it. And so finally, he would rent the pews out of his pocket with his own money. He would rent the pews from the church so the children could be there. And then pretty soon, the church people got tired of that. And so what they did, he, I've got pictures of D.L. Moody. He took the children down across the tracks into an old abandoned railroad car. And in the abandoned car, he's standing there with a candle in one hand and this, and this little black boy holding him up like this, reading the word of God to all the children. And that never left his heart. And then now let's jump forward. A few years later, this same D.L. Moody had now become the world fame or, or, or had become quite a famous evangelist in the, in the U.S., not the world, of course, at that point. But he was speaking 
at a big gathering in Indianapolis, Indiana, 20,000 people. And D.L. Moody was one of those guys that was never rattled by anything. He walked out on the platform, and this is how they began the convention. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to say that our song leader, our song director, has been detained. There's a cow across the the tracks and the train has been held up and they can't, so we don't have a song leader. Is there anyone here that would lead us in a song? And so way back in the middle, in the back, in the middle of these thousands of people, have I told you all this story? Back in the back, there was this, there was a young man sitting back there. He just stood up in the middle of thousands of people and he said, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from me. And he had one of those big old everybody sing kind of voices. And by the time it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their gift. By the time he got to lose all their guilty stains, 20,000 people had stood to their feet and they're all saying, Lose all their guilty stains. The whole atmosphere had been charged with these images and this truth. And, and D.L. Moody just stood stunned on the platform at what had happened. He immediately walked down off of the platform all the way back to this guy and pulled out a card from his breast pocket. And he said, I've been looking for you for eight years. Here's my address. About six months later, well, this, of course, we know who this young man was. His name was Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey lived in Pennsylvania, right out close to a place called Newcastle, Pennsylvania, in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. And there in that place, he didn't fit. And you know why? He was a songwriter. He was weird. He was temperamental. He was creative. If he were a if he were, if the whole world was a tuxedo, he'd have been a brown pair of shoes. You know what I'm saying? He was a misfit, and he didn't fit in the church world. You know why he didn't fit very good in the church world? Because everywhere he went, he carried a portable organ about that tall, this wide. It's called an Este pump organ, and they were portable. I have one of them, made in 1853, or 1856. And what you do is you unleash, it's, it's like a box this tall, this wide, and squ- squared. But you flip these little hooks on it, and the legs just flop out from under the thing, and they're pump, they're pump, it's a pump organ. But it's portable. They used them during the Civil War for hymn singings and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, at the Stone River Battlefield, they had hymn singings there every night. 500 Yankee soldiers got saved in a place called Hell's Half Acre right before they went to their death the next day. Is because they were carrying song into those places. Well, well, oh, uh, uh, Ira Sankey carried one everywhere he went. And he'd show up on somebody's church steps and sing because he had song in him. But he didn't fit in the liturgical atmospheres of the church of the day. Because remember, liturgy was textual-based and it was never experience-based. It was always an atmosphere created for a text to hopefully have impact. But there was never emotion and things connected to the music so much in those days. That's why some of those folks like Bach and all of them were such radical, scandalous musicians because they brought emotion into the house of God. And people responding music to the music was, was in some places kind of shunned, if you will. 
But here was here was uh, th- th- this Arasanki guy who didn't fit anywhere. He just go, and everybody know. Oh man, if he shows up at your church, he's going to sing. We just know it's going to happen. So knowing he didn't fit, one day he just said, he got on the train, put that organ on the train, and took off. And he winds up and he knocks on the door at five o'clock in the morning, D.L. Moody's house, and and who's now living in Chicago. And when he knocks on the door, D.L. Moody's house, D.L. Moody comes to the door. And there stands this guy. You don't even know he's coming. He's stand- he says, I'm here. And D.L. Moody said, yes, you are. <laughs> and he was already up and ready. So he just reached and grabbed his hat, put his hat on and said, you ready to go to work? Yes. Here they go. Out the door they went. Down to the street corner. In front of a, a fruit market, D.L. Moody pulls out an apple box and sets it out. And he looks to Ira and he, and, and, and Ira, he says, Ira, Sing. And he opened that, that pump organ and he starts howling and singing. He had one of those big old voices just resonating and bouncing off all the buildings. And people start gathering around to hear, listen, what, listen to this song. And at the end of the, end of the song, D.L. Moody would step up on the, this apple box and preach the gospel. Twelve people gave their heart to Jesus. Come on, Ira. And they take off ten blocks away. Set up the apple box. Ira, Sing. He sings, he preaches, about 20 people got saved. Grabbed the apple box, here we go. All over Chicago that was happening. And they, they were just as amazed as everybody else. They watched the word and the song begin to shift the atmosphere in the whole town. And not long after that, now this was Ira's dream come true. And not long after that, Miss O'Leary's cow kicked a lantern over in Chicago and the whole town burned to the ground. Hundreds died. The whole town went in what was called the Chicago Fire. Ira finds himself now not even knowing if D.L. Moody is alive. Did his family make it out of the fire? All he knows is he's sitting in Lake Michigan in a snitched rowboat with an organ sitting beside of him, looking at the whole town going away, knowing that his dream is probably over. The very thing that brought him the most life and the most sense of self-worth, singing the word of God into an atmosphere and seeing people give their heart to Jesus was all he wanted to live for then. But now it was all over. You ever live, you ever have seasons of your life where you know it's dream and doubt, dream and doubt, dream and doubt. Cycles of dream and doubt can consume whole seasons and years of your life. Dream and doubt, dream and doubt, dream and doubt. A lot of times songs are born out of those, but it's dream and doubt, dream and doubt nonetheless. And the only way that you can break cycles of dream and doubt over your life is to live from passion rather than circumstances. Saul lived his life according to circumstances, by the way. David lived his life according to relationship and interaction with the Father. Did the doubts come? Did the blues come? Did the disappointments come? Did the enemies come? Yes. But every time his song would raise a lyric above loss and despair and all that. And I will yet I will praise the Lord my God who is worthy to be praised. So he found song as an access to the Father which gave us language and lyric that we're still singing today. And he's, that's why he speaks of songs of deliverance. But anyway, let me, let, me, let me stay going here. Uh, now, what happened was the whole town's burning, going away. Ira doesn't know if it's all over. And, but they actually, they found one another in the middle of the tragedy, in the middle of the darkest storm of the city. 
And then God began to anoint them to help restore the city because of what they were carrying together. And because they, because they were such conduits, I guess is the word, of life, Everybody they would touch with song and the word of God, song and the word of God. It was the two wings of the eagle flying over a, a, flying over a disaster is what it was. And then one day D.L. Moody walked in and said, Ira, we have been invited to go to London. We need to be praying about whether or not we're supposed to go to London, England. And, and Ira said, okay, let's pray. Okay, let's do it. Prayer was that quick. They were both. You know, sometimes, sometimes we do ourselves a great disservice by going to seasons of prayer about something God said to do. See, sometimes we use, really, we'll, we'll, we'll use prayer as a substitute for obedience. When God speaks to you, he's looking for obedience. He's not looking for you to, wait, to extend that season of time and find ways to get religious with your prayer. When God's already spoken to you, it's time to get in the boat. And when he says get in the boat, get in the boat. Now, and then when you get in the boat, pray. Never devalue pray, prayer. But don't use prayer as a substitute for obedience. Here they go. We're going. And let me show you how obedience works sometimes. They to make that journey all the way across. They get to London, England. And the four people that had invited them, all four of them were dead. What's the first thing you think? We must have missed God. We, you know, we should have prayed about it. No, they moved out of obedience and a pure heart. They get here. Circumstances did not dictate who they were. They got here and they said, okay, the meetings obviously are canceled. So what we'll do is we're just going to be who we are. And who are we? We pray. So they started and that's literally what they did. They called a prayer meeting. And they gathered a few people together. And in no time, they had released something in the prayer realm and in the, and in the song realm and in the word realm through the, these prayer gatherings. And out of those prayer gatherings, they started having meetings. And pretty soon, down the road here in London, that what they would do is they realized very quickly that they had no churches that would actually accommodate what they were carrying. Do you hear me? So when, when there was nothing that was, here's what they would do. They would build tabernacles, portable tabernacles. They'd build this thing and they would have meetings there. And, they, and now in no time at all, they're having 15, 20,000 people a night, 25,000 people a night. And, 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 and here's D.L. Moody would walk up on the platform and he'd preach the word of God. And by now, Every, the whole city is being moved by this thing. Go to here, Moody Sankey is what they called it. We're going to a Moody Sankey meeting, and when they'd get there, D.L. Moody would preach the word of God. And, but the, but the, all of the local preachers and, and the aristocracy of London did not like Ira Sankey. And the reason is because Ira was a bit weird, like I said. And he was always, and it was one of those guys that's just always busy, you know. He'd never sit still, and he's always like, he'd be sitting on the platform like this. And all of the, the local Londoners in their funeral frock coats and, their, and the Bibles under their arms, and all these stoic attitudes and all this. And here's this guy from Pennsylvania up there messing with papers and got his pen out, you know. Doing, drawing little stick figures and stuff and 
And, it, and, and then, and of course, everybody, such a distraction from the Word of God, you know. And then Bill Moody would be preaching along and he'd turn it and say, Ira, sing. And Ira would get up and grab up all these papers and collect all this stuff. And he would go over and set them down on the organ and he would sing the song. And what they didn't know he was doing was the word of God as it was being preached. He's writing a song that carry into the wind the very promises that D.L. Moody is putting out there. He was singing the sermon. And they didn't know what to even call this music. That's not hymns. That's not psalms. That's not... They didn't know what to name it. So finally somebody came up with the name of it. Not far from here. They named it. I know what we'll call it. We'll call it gospel singing. Nobody had ever heard that term before. There was a new song, a new sound being formed in the atmosphere of what they carried. And you know, and during the days when the meetings wouldn't be going on, and these big old, now here's the way it worked. When they get done with the meeting here in this tabernacle, they were building one on the other side of London. They would go over there. They would tear this one down and move it over there. When they get down there, they go over there and the tabernacle is waiting. And then when they, ta- when they get through there, this one had been torn down and moved over here. You ever feel like y'all are doing that a little bit? Sure. Every week tearing down, moving, go- yeah, here we go. But moving from place to place to place and always feeling like you don't necessarily belong because there's not a sense of anchorage and what you're doing, and that's, and that's the way they were, moving from place, just atmosphere to atmosphere. And during the days, the meetings, here's what Ira Sankey would be doing. Ira, between meetings, would be sitting like up on the platform, had the big elevated platforms, big old trap doors for the ventilation to come through, and he would be sitting up there looking out the window with that pump organ, singing one of those gospel songs that had just come alive in him. And one day a little boy walked up and pulled him sleeves and said, Mr. Sankey, look. Well, he's sitting there at the organ like this split. And so he just stands up and he looks out the window. And down on the ground, there's a 1,000 to 1,200 people kneeling, giving their heart to Jesus because they hear this song that is, that's invading the air. And when it came time for the Sunday morning services, on Saturday, D.L. Moody would stand up in his big old voice. And by the way, he led a million and a half souls to Jesus. And they said he was not a good preacher because he's a farm boy from, from Massachusetts and he never could say the book of Daniel right. But there, this not good preacher and this misfit songwriter, he would stood up and he looked out there and he would, he would see that. And then on Saturday nights, D.L. Moody would stand up in the meetings and say, Ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow morning you will not be welcome on Sunday morning in this tabernacle. He says, you'll not be welcome. This place will be given for the children. And every Sunday morning until 1899, when D.L. Moody went to heaven, he always made room for the children because he remembered that on Sunday morning the children were not welcome in the house of God. All of England has now been set ablaze by a preacher and a songwriter that carried compassion and carried spontaneity and the intuitive ability to access God's desire for that place and speak it in such a way that God would draw people. You know, when they left out of here, they went up to Newcastle. Got to Newcastle, the whole town turned upside down for the gospel. 
on up to Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, they had such a revival there that they, they couldn't even house all of the people to get in the meeting down at the grass market. There was a big auditorium, a big uh, concert hall kind of place down at the grass market by then. And so right there, over the very bones, if you will, of the covenanters and all of the martyrs that had died for the gospel in Scotland, right there in those that very place, they would stand and preach the gospel. By thousands, they would get saved. And while... And, of course, while they were there, there was a, a, one of D.L. and Ira's best friends uh, back in Chicago. They, they'd, they'd lost their little boy. Tragedy situation. Their little son had died as a result of, of, a, of a fever. And, uh, but, it, but the young man was an entrepreneur, a very successful businessman. He and his wife, they decided, well, you know what? We need some time away. Why don't we just go and support D.L. and Ira and their in their meeting in Edinburgh. And so they'd go down to get on uh, to get on the boat to come. And when they get ready to leave, uh, uh, the young man, Horatio was his name. Horatio got a call and he had to stay for a business thing. And he said to his wife, he said, you, you guys go ahead and uh, just give my love to, to DL and Ira and I'll be on the next boat over in about a week. And uh, so they took off on this boat, his, his wife and, and four daughters. And uh, as they were heading across the ocean, another liner, another boat struck that boat and it went down. And you know the story, but it was a horrible, tragic thing. All four of the daughters and his wife were in that shipwreck. And about a few days, some days later, Almost a week, about a week later, he got a telegraph from Cardiff, Wales. His wife had floated on some debris, had floated to shore in Cardiff, Wales, way off course, and had sent a telegraph, and it simply said, saved alone. And so this young man, Horatio, got on a boat to go and find his wife, and then they would go to find Dale and Ira together. But he got on the boat to go find his wife and halfway across the captain brought him into his chambers and the captain said as best as we can figure and we're good at this I can tell you that right here where we are right now in the water is where where uh, the boat went down and this young man Horatio Spafford sat down and and uh, he looked out across the water and he took out his journal and he began to write and he, the words that he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, He wrote, It is well with my soul, over the very spot that his whole world had gone away. Now, that can be a deeply emotional thing for us to imagine and picture that, or we can reach beyond that. And see a reality that a song more powerful than death was living in him. And he found the lyrics that released life. And until this day, the lyric is still releasing a knowing of God that fills air with an expressed confidence in God's ability to see us through the storms that we come through. And now here's the, here's the wonderful thing about what you guys do. All over, all over London, 
there are places where God did these amazing things with these amazing people. And all over Edinburgh and all over Glasgow, let me tell you, let me finish this. When they got to Edinburgh, God moved in such profound ways there. And then when that was over, they went to Glasgow. And when they got to Glasgow, Scotland, God moved in such profound ways there and it worked the same way. Speak the word of God, Ira sing. Speak the word of God, Ira sing. And in those gatherings, they begin to gather massive choirs where everybody was bringing their note and shifting the atmosphere with their note put in the wind. Now, here's the way it worked. When they got to Glasgow, God had moved so powerfully there that they had to start selling tickets, for giving tickets out for the meetings. And you know how that worked? It, it, here's, the way, here's the way it worked. I, say I'm a ticket guy. And I would come to you and, say, and you'd say, I want a ticket, for, Moody Sankey ticket. And I'd say, are you a Christian? He'd say, yes. And I'd say, well, you don't get a ticket then. Are you a Christian? And he says, no, you get a ticket then. Look at that. Look how things have changed, guys. Now we have to win them with hot dogs and keep them with pizza. You know, we're trying to, trying to make something happen and promote and all this kind of stuff. In those days, there was such a song of heaven in the atmosphere that people were drawn to what they were carrying in their life. And so when they got to Glasgow, the play, the, every building that they took the meetings to would be so overwhelmed that they couldn't stay there anymore. Got down to the last night of the meetings, and this is what it looked like. They were meeting in the botanical gardens in Glasgow, Scotland. And it was filled. And when they brought D.L. Moody in, he rode in on, a, on this carriage coming to the meetings. When he got there, he realized he will never make it all the way to the, to the platform. So he just stood up on the, on the carriage to preach the word from the carriage to the thousands. What he didn't know was Ira had posted thousands of voices on top of all the buildings and all the choir on. So when the carriage came in, all this choir stood up and began to sing the praises and the botanical gardens and all the flowers and the beauty and the horticulture and all the landscape stuff. Just, it was just like a part of the ambiences of heaven as they were singing over, over the whole thing. Can you imagine what, how beautiful that that would have been? That all creation giving forth his praise, filling the atmosphere like that. And then they went back to Arthur's seat in Edinburgh. And there are over 50,000 people gathered at, at Arthur's seat just to hear the word of God again. And now, not only be negative, but now it, it's a very different time. But in, the, in heaven, time is very different. What if we begin to access the purposes of heaven, the language of heaven, the lyric of heaven, the life of heaven, and we begin to carry song like they did? Now, am I just some, some hopeless, hopeless, romantic looking back, feudally looking back at some era that's dead and gone? No. I believe God has got some things that we cannot even imagine or think. Still waiting sometimes for somebody out of a coal mine in town in Pennsylvania to rise up out of their insignificance and sing one song that shifts their destiny and the destiny of millions around them. I believe I, this is not, I, this is not just about history. It's about honoring what God did in the past. And when we honor what God did in the past, we're, 
holding forth what God can do in the future if we will just ignite our faith and set our hearts in order for that kind of stuff. Now, it's hard to say this kind of stuff, but without with all of us trying to scrutinize what that would look like in our world today. They didn't know what it would look like in their world either. But they walked out their journeys, finding God in the next step, in the next step, in the next step. But now I believe there's an accelerated release of God that's going to bring it not just in the simplicity of our steps, God's going to create the wave that begins to sweep over cities and sweep over nations as he reveals himself. I want to tell you, you don't have to preach a good sermon when a nine-foot angel shows up on the sidewalk with a flaming sword and everybody within the sound of his voice is healed. Do we actually be, believe there's a supernatural realm and that there's a spirit realm and there's, there's a purpose for our prayers and there's a purpose for what we carry as promises in our heart? Even within, uh, even within our very DNAs are the songs of God's doings of days past. That's the God I'm hoping, hoping for now. I know if we can prove it scientifically how you can take a particular note or a frequency and play it into your body and your pancreas be healed and they're doing it. What If that's the supernatural world that we have been able to access and diminish down to academia and we put it over there in science and academia when the fact is God is the God of that science. God is the God of that. God is the God who, who, who allows songs of deliverance, promises, and, per, and I'll say the word, the performances of God in days past, moving things in the spirit realm, moving things in the culture, moving things in the world because the power of his presence is revealed. That's the God that I want, I, I want to tell my grandkids about. And I don't want to be one of those old guys sitting on the porch telling them old stories that never happen anymore. God only moves in faraway places and places that can't even be accountable, uh, accountable to or, or dreamed world. I want to be able to tell my, ch- I want my children to see the finger grow back. I want my great, gra- my grandchildren to see the blind eyes healed. I, w- I want my great grandchildren to see those, those kind of things as a reality, as a truth, rather than old, Old people's stories. We don't need old people's stories right now. We need songs of deliverance moving into a new generation. We need something that is so supernatural that it is drawing people unto a real God where real people with real hurts and real pain experience a real God in real life. And that's what I'm going to pray right now for every person in this room. I want to pray that Real God shows up in your real world. And I I said it yesterday, you know, after what God did in so many lives yesterday, now we got to go back out to the real world. No, this is the real world. What God does in us in times of coming together in his presence and we carry that reality into that world that is superficial and struggling and hurting. There are people out there that's going through pain and they don't have a song. There are people out there losing their children and they don't have a song. They don't have when peace like a river attendeth my way. Is it just an attitude that we have in the the face of crisis? Do we just get an attitude and it kind of sustains us and helps us through? No, it's not just an attitude. 
It can be expressed through attitudes sometimes, but there is a God that's very real that knows where where and when the storms are, and he's wanting to take take us through. And our song, Carry the Life. Amen? Well, Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this day, and I thank you, I thank you, Lord, that for the songwriters, but I thank you, Lord, for the people in this room who have, like D.L. Moody, who have had an encounter with you, and now they carry encounter because of it. Those who have had defining moments now carry in defining moments. Lord, I thank you that I thank you for the compassion that we can see in D.L.'s life. But Lord, I pray that you would immerse us, baptize us today in a new and fresh compassion for the hurting and the dying. And Lord, I pray that you never allow us to to diminish it all to debating theologies and belief systems. Lord, I pray that you will give us a grace upon our life that causes us to carry your presence that that people cannot resist because of your goodness. And the goodness of God is what will bring the people to repentance. The kindness of God is what brings people to repentance. May we have something happen in our life that awakens the kindness and it be a kindness deep enough for us to crawl on our elbows from dying soldier to dying soldier. Lord, help that be our story. And Lord, help us be the ones that just take up that old pump organ and get on a train. Not always knowing where we're going or what it's going to look like. But Lord, I pray also that you will help us as a, as a corporate people to carry a sound now from post to post, station to station. You know, I bet it would amaze us if we knew how many places you guys have sung songs that Ira sank and a very spot, the very place in this city that Ira would have sang. That would be wonderful to know that. As you guys are continually moving in what would have been old London in those days. All of London's old, I guess. But you're moving in those very places, in those very communities that God did those mighty acts. So Lord, I pray this. According to your word, songs of deliverance are reaching back. That's our ability to reach back in this timelessness in the spirit realm and bring those mighty acts forward on our song. So Lord, I pray that you surround this body with songs of deliverance. I pray, Lord, that you would cause the, the Ira Sankeys to sing in the streets. I, I pray that you cause singers and musicians and the preachers of the word, livers of life, those who live life in this place to carry these truths as a reality and shift the atmosphere and shift this atmosphere in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I've got, I've got a decree that I want to make. And I meant to do it. This is just a decree, a, de- a declaration. I hope to goodness I have it in this. That, uh, here it is. I, I want to I make this decree. I know. Now listen, y'all. I'm sorry if I'm going too long, but I'm, I'm leaving in just, in just a minute. Because we know that nothing happens in the kingdom without declaration. Lord, I declare right now, Lord, as we pray for new wells of revival, not old wells, new wells, 
new wells of revival, we pray for the economic wells also to be created. Lord, we ask you for favor with CEOs and manufacturing firms that produce goods for nations and provide new jobs for a people that love you. Lord, I declare that the technology in London, England, the technology to, to establish new markets and energy sources throughout the world and its population. Lord, I decree and declare right now that the laws and the courts in this city that measure justice and freedom from our land's constitutions and bylaws. Lord, we pray for them right now that they be filled with godly men. We pray, Lord, right now that the civil servants in this city would begin to encourage the entrepreneurs and the, and the dreamers in the kingdom, the dreamers in this church. We declare right now, Lord, that the media in this city will become known for wisdom and truth and godliness. We declare that the natural resources of this land be released and harvested and that there, there would be kingdom influence brought into those realms. We declare right now in the, for the education and the books in the universities of London, England that properly develop the minds and molders who will influence the influential in tomorrow's day. We're praying, Lord, for a saturation and an immersion of, uh, of kingdom-carrying, uh, God-fearing people to rise back up with a voice in the city of London and beyond and in this nation. We're declaring, Lord, that people in this room will have supernatural resources come to their life that give them the capital to build small businesses and provide services that attract the next generation and they will carry truth and invade atmospheres of loss and bring life. Lord, we declare right now that in London, England, that the medical community will now be known for integrity and excellence and the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ released into the medical community. And Lord, we declare that there will be repentance of our own hearts, repentance from poverty this morning, repentance from small thinking, repentance from, from envy and jealousies. We declare, Lord, that we repent from being so little-minded that we turn our eyes into our own issues and our own circumstances. We declare that out of this repentance, we will look outward and look into the lives that need to hear and know you. We declare right now to this body that there will be courage to recognize and to seize opportunities without apology, seize opportunities to make wealth that will further the kingdom in this city. And Lord, we declare abundance in this house and in the people in this room, abundance to bless the world and the prudence to save and to invest and sow into our children and our children's children. And we declare, Lord, that this become a, play, a, a people known for supernatural wealth coming to their lives. Supernatural wealth to be passed on to their children and their children's children. Those children that will sing the song that you're awakening in, in us today. So we de I declare this, that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So we declare right now that London, England will become a place known for rejoicing in the streets, resounding your praise in the streets, renew, rebuild, repair, and restore the old ways with a new sound and a new song and a new language. We declare and proclaim all for Jesus, the real King, and His kingdom. And for the increase of His government, there shall be no end on the, on the land of England. And every nation that is touched by this nation will begin to experience the greatness, the favor, the wonder, and the beauty of God upon this city. And Lord, we're declaring that it will start in those culture shapers that are in this room that maybe not even know that they are culture shapers, that this 
this day that let the Arasankis rise up out of the insignificance and declare the word of truth through the life in their song. May the D.L. Moody's in this room rise up in Jesus' name and speak, speak in their broken farm language if necessary, but speak in such a way that life is imparted and a future generation will not be a result of the darkness of what's happened in this one, but it'll be a result of the light that has been released. And the goodness of God will overtake and overwhelm the nation of England in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday. 